Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Uh, we see that, uh, of course, that occurred here in Daniel, but we've seen that in other places in the Bible. Uh, for example, in Esther chapter 6, verse 1, King Ahazer, Ahaz, that king, <laughs> um, Ahaz, oh boy, I'm really struggling here, Ahasuerus, whatever, he's the king of Persia. It says, that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. You, if you know the story, or maybe you've seen that movie, right? A Night with the King. You know, you can maybe picture in your mind what's taking place. So that happened, uh, as well as to what happened here with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, a similar thing happened years and years before that uh, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Uh, Genesis 41, verse 8. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So we see this kind of a repeating thing going on through the Bible. There's another one that's kind of interesting to me. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, Pilate is uh, questioning Jesus, and it says in 27, verse 19 of Matthew, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Very interesting. We see a, a kind of a common thread in all those stories. And what's the common thread? The common thread is this. Ungodly people of influence God speaks to. And the outcome of those things, it affects people. Uh, except for Pilate's wife, the dream altered the outcome of a situation. I think in the case of Pilate's wife, it just more or less sealed the judgment for Pilate. I mean, he was warned. He himself said, Jesus is a just man. Now his wife's telling him, and he goes ahead and, and, and lets the, the Jewish people crucify him anyway. So, I mean, that's just that much more accountability for Pilate. But the point that I wanted to bring out in this is even during difficult times, when an ungodly ruler is on the throne, God is still in control. God is still working in the world around us. God is desiring that none perish, but that all come to repentance. And so he is working. You know, I think sometimes I look at our current situation. Pray that our president starts having dreams because, you know, we want things to change. Anyways, um, but you know what I mean. God is in control. And here, you know, Daniel as also the case with uh, Joseph and, and uh, with uh, Mordecai and the story of Esther, they had no clue that God was working on their behalf, and yet God is. Sometimes we have no clue that God is moving before us, and he is, because God's in control. When we get to verse 2, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give the interpretation. Four groups of people are mentioned here. The first one is the magicians. The word literally means engraver, and it's a writer that was associated with the occult. These people seem to have knowledge of like astrology and divination. Uh, you, you can think of like, uh, you know, the daily horoscopes. The, the, these were the guys that were involved with that aspect of the occult. Astrologers, the, the word actually literally means enchanters. And what it means is those that conjured spirits, they, they spoke to the dead. They, you know, they did seances and things like that. Uh, they were the, what you would call the occultic mediums. And then there were sorcerers, and those were those that practiced witchcraft. 
And then finally, the Chaldeans. Now, that's kind of a confusing term because the people that were from Chaldea, a portion of Babylon, were called Chaldeans. But this is not just a population of people. This is a special class of men who studied the stars and were considered very, very wise. They might even have been considered the philosophers of their age. So the King Pharaoh, or excuse me, King Pharaoh, King Nebuchadnezzar consults with all these different groups of, of people that were around his throne. Now what's interesting to me is back in Daniel chapter 1 verse 20 that we read last week, regarding Daniel and his companions, it says, in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined him, he found them, that was Daniel and his, and his three buddies, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and all the astrologers who were in all his realm. So it would have made sense that Nebuchadnezzar had spoken, had called Daniel and his friends in, maybe even before he called anybody else. For whatever reason, he did not inquire of them. I have no idea why. We don't, we're not told that. So anyways, the Chaldeans, they seem to be the spokesman for all this group of people. They say, oh, king, live forever. You usually would say that to a king that has control over your life and death, you know. Um, Tell your servants the dream and we'll give the interpretation. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make, the no, make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. This was not an idle threat that Nebuchadnezzar was making. He had the power over life and death of all his subjects. Now, a question kind of arises. Did Nebuchadnezzar forget his dreams? And you know, I was looking into this, and some of the commentators actually say, yes, he forgot his dream, so he wanted the Chaldeans to remind him what his dream was and then give him the interpretation. And there are people that think that that's what the case is. I happen to not believe that. Based on verse 9 that we'll look at in a moment, I don't think uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted yes-men around him. You kind of get the tone in the way he responds to them. Plus, this was only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So these guys more than likely were in his father's uh, administration or his father's kingdom. And so, you know, maybe he's just, he's seen these guys, how they operate and stuff. And he says, man, these guys are flakes. And so he's kind of putting them on the, putting them on the carpet and, and really giving them a challenge. He doesn't want yes men. And that's, that's my opinion of it. Um, anyways, verse seven, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. Verse 9, if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. So I think, that's a, I think that's a very valid challenge, you know. Hey, uh, yeah, you, can, you guys will probably just tell me what I want to hear. And, you know, in the Bible, you read that, well, the false prophets, they would tell the kings, like King Ahab, for example, you know, oh, you're going to be successful in battle and stuff. And they would just tell the king what he wanted to hear. And Nebuchadnezzar is a wise guy. And he's like, I'm not going to have, you tell me that you, you know the dream, I'm not going to tell you what it is. And then they'll all know that, yeah, there's some power behind you. Well, verse 7, they either ignore or it didn't sink in. They again say to him, tell us the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. So the king has given them a challenge. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Here's these guys 
They have their power of, their, their, their position of authority, luxury, their income was made on, supposedly they could communicate, they could speak the future, they could, they, you know, they had an insight to the spirit world and all this stuff. They get to this challenge and they go, man, we can't do it. We can't do it. Their response reveals their impotence. They say there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. Well, they supposedly worship other gods, so how come their gods didn't give them the information? It also reveals the impotence of their so-called gods as well. You know, I think of Janus and Jambres. We don't know their names in the book of Exodus, but uh, uh, Stephen, I think it's Stephen, uh, mentions their names. One of, the, one of the New Testament writers mentions them. They were the magicians who when Moses came with Aaron before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and he had the rod, and the rod changed into a serpent, and you know he changed the, the Nile River to blood and things like that. The magicians were there. They opposed Moses, and they were able to duplicate many of the, of the uh, miracles of Moses up to a point. They finally got to a point where they're, they're, they were unable to do anything, and then they go to Pharaoh and go, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is what that reminds me of. You know, this whole portion here that we just looked at now, it gives us a perspective on the kingdom of darkness. And I knew, uh, I used to work with this girl and uh, years ago when I first uh, got out of the military and I started working at IBM as in manufacturing and there was this girl night shift and she worked at the same table I did. And so we had a lot of conversations, share the gospel with her and stuff. And she's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm a Christian and stuff. But then on the same th token, she would always call these psychic hotlines, you know, to get, I've got to find out what's going on, what's going to happen next week. And she, I'm like, man, you, you don't do that, you know. And anyway, she kept doing that. But this episode here gives us perspective on the kingdom of darkness. Listen, Satan knows scripture, all right? I mean, he can quote scripture, and he does, albeit out of context when he does. But he knows scripture. But I want to make this point very clear. Satan only knows the future as far as scripture reveals it. He does not know beyond that. He only knows what you and I know, what the Bible says. Sometimes we give him way too much credit in this world. He knows only as much as we do regarding Scripture. Why do I say that? Because in 1 Peter 1.10, those, by the way, are some flaky angels, but I had to get something up there, okay? I don't think angels are quite... Usually they're scary, right? People see an angel and they think they're going to die. If I saw a guy like that, I'd, I'd go, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> You get the point, though. You'll, you'll get the point when I read the verse. 1 Peter 1.10. Peter is speaking of the salvation and, and how, how it was revealed. It says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's not the point I want to make. This last portion is what the point is. Things which angels desire to look into. Satan is not the equal but opposite of God. Satan is an angel. He was a created being, a fallen angel. But he's just that. And so... He, like all the other angels, they, they're, they're surprised by God's plan of salvation. Satan doesn't know the future. So if you're one of those people that likes to go to a psych, psychic hotline or stuff, you're wasting your money. You're wasting your time because they don't know the future. Only God knows the future. So that's my point. Anyways, verse 12. So the kings say, you know, there's nobody but the gods that can reveal this, and they're not around. <laughs> Uh, verse 12, that was my paraphrasing. For this reason, the king was very angry and very, excuse me, angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men as, and, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, Daniel, he was not questioned about the dream or his companions, but they were, you know, kind of lumped in with the Chaldeans and the magicians and everything, so they're going to be killed as well. Verse 14, Then with counsel and wisdom 
Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had, gave out, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. We'll look at that in a moment, but I want to bring this out. Crisis does not produce character. Crisis reveals character. Crisis re- reveals character. And the reason why I say that is Daniel hears that all the wise men, including him and his three buddies, are going to be executed because they can't give the, the interpretation of this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. What could Daniel have done in that crisis? Well, he could have fled. He could have been so fearful, he's like hightailed it out of Babylon. He could have done that. He could have fought. He could have raised up an insurrection of, uh, of magicians and Chaldeans and, you know, tried to fight the Babylonians against, you know, that probably would have been a losing battle, but he could have tried it. He could have gone out and started protesting in the streets. Or he could have groveled and just begged for his life. He could have done those things. And a crisis will typically reveal, or the crisis will reveal, what your and my character is. It doesn't produce our character. Whatever your character is, you enter into a crisis, it's going to come out. What was his character? He answered Arioch with counsel. That means discernment or discretion and with wisdom. I like Proverbs 2, verse 10 and 11. When wisdom enters into your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion shall keep you, understanding shall watch over you. Verse 15, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. What's interesting in this verse here is that earlier the king would not give the Chaldeans any more time. They're like, they're like I know you want to buy time so that I'll change my mind. But here, he gives Daniel time to go, because Daniel says, you know, give me time, and then I'll tell you what the dream means and what it is. And, he, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is willing to give Daniel time. Why? Well, we're not told in scriptures, but I believe firmly it's because God gave Daniel favor in King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. It's the only way. It could only have been God to do that. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Last week, we kind of dug into the names of Daniel and his buddies, their, their, their Hebrew names. Daniel, so if I could kind of like uh, re, re-paraphrase this, Daniel, whose name is God is my judge, went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, to Mishael, who is what God is, and to Azariah, Jehovah has helped, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. These men, their names speak of God of his grace, of his protection, of his leading, of of who is like God. There's no other God like the God of of Israel. These guys knew where to go in a crisis. They went to the Lord God in prayer. They knew where to turn, and they had a prayer meeting that night. I'll venture to say their prayer meeting was not like any of our prayer meetings. When we have a prayer meeting, you know, you might get one or two people might show up, and we just pray, you know. These guys, can you imagine how passionate they would have been praying? Because their lives were literally in the balance here. And sometimes I think, you know, I'm ashamed of myself because I don't pray with the passion and fervency that we see other people in the Scriptures. Now, of course, their lives are on the line. But, you know, sometimes we, we come to God with some urgent concerns, but we, we don't pray with that urgency, with that fervency. And so, anyways, I just wonder how passionate their prayer was, and I can only imagine. Verse 19, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 
Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God my Father, of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So the Lord revealed in a vision to Daniel what the interpretation of what well, what the dream was and what the interpretation of it was. And what does Daniel do? The very first thing he does, he worships the Lord. And he starts by saying, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Daniel was given wisdom, but he never once forgot the source of his wisdom and the source of power. It all belongs to the Lord God. For you and I as believers, Jesus Christ is your and my source for wisdom, and he alone has all authority Colossians 2 verse 3, speaking of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Are you looking for wisdom in a situation in your life? Man, go to Jesus. Seek him because he's the source of wisdom. Your neighbor down the street, your buddy that doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, maybe they're smarter than you, they don't have wisdom. It only comes from the Lord God. And all, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven on earth was given to me. You need the Lord to move in a situation. You, you're in a tough situation. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the authority. He has wisdom. His, he has the source of all wisdom. He is the source of all wisdom. Daniel also made this comment as he's worshiping the Lord. He changes the times and the seasons. You know, Daniel had no choice in this situation. We were talking, a couple of us were talking this morning before the service began. Here's this young man in, in, in Jerusalem, and the Babylonians come, and they take him, and they bring him to Babylon. I don't think Daniel was, like, recruited. Like, hey, you know, like there was a guy that showed up, and well, let me show you some brochures of what Babylon looks like, and you're, you can find your adventure here in Babylon. You know, it wasn't that. It's like, you, you're coming. You, you're coming with me. He didn't have a choice in the matter. Can you imagine being a young man just ripped out of your family, away from your parents and your friends and your brothers and sisters, into a foreign land? They don't even speak the same language. They have the power to kill you. Can you imagine what that would be like? God changed the season that the Jews were going through, that the Israelites were going through, but it was for his purposes. What's interesting, and we obviously won't get to it today, but in Daniel chapter 7... The Antichrist, we're told, is going to intend to change times in law. He's going to try to do it, but God's in control of the time. God's in control of the seasons. Daniel and his companions found themselves in a new season as captives of Babylon. But even in that situation, God was in control and God was still working. They had no idea, but God was still working on their behalf. What did they do in this new season that they found themselves? No choice. We talked about it last week. They adapted well to the season by setting up boundaries in their heart. This is, a, this is the line I can't cross. And they were seeking the Lord in his righteousness in this new situation. You and I, were entering a different season. Certainly a different season for this church. It's been... It's been a change for, for me as a pastor. You know, the, the makeup of our congregation has changed over this year and a half or whatever, whatever that length of time this pandemic has, has, has been. We're in a different season for us as a church, and you certainly are as an individual. I know there are people that are facing the choice of, do I get vaccinated or not? And their jobs literally depend on whether they do or not. And I know for some people, it's, it's like, it's no, it, there is no issue. It's just go ahead and do it. That's fine. But for, there are people that have legitimate religious beliefs and convictions about it. And they're struggling. And they're entering into a, they're potentially entering into a very new season 
of change in their lives. You know, we can respond to seasons in different ways, changing seasons. One of the ways that we can do is we can get stuck in a season, the past. And we, try to, we try to cling to that past, and that's all we can think about. And, you know, we, we're just, this new change, it like takes the wind out of our sails. And we're paralyzed. We just don't know what to do because, well, the past. God is always changing seasons. God is always changing times for his purposes. And like it or not, we find ourselves in a new season. So what do we do? We do what Daniel and his companions do. We can also either get stuck in a season that is past, or we can be like David's mighty men. I don't know if you've read that before. In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. I love that. They looked at the times. They saw the seasons change, and they go, I know what, God's doing something here. I know what I need to do in response to that. You and I find ourselves in a change of seasons. Do we have understanding of the times? Do we see, you know, you open up your Bible, and you look at prophecy, and you look at what's occurring in current events, and go, oh, man, I see how they fit together. Do we see that? Do we understand that? And then beyond just like being a... a prophecy buff sometimes we like to be a prophecy buff beyond being a prophecy buff what do you do with that how does it change your life how do you respond well find out seek the lord in prayer and seek the lord in his word so here's another point i want to bring out daniel and his companions they find themselves in a season there's a it's a new season it's not a comfortable season they're captives God has blessed them, but they're still, you know, they're there not by their choice. And it's a completely different environment they're in. What does Daniel and his companions do? Man, I love it. They worship God. They worship God during this time. And let me ask you this rhetorically. Can you, like Daniel, worship God for the change? Or are you angry or upset that God has changed your world? Can you thank him for the change, and can you worship him in the change? Because God is at work. He's got a purpose behind everything that he's doing, and he still loves you. And you, know, you might be going through a very difficult thing and go, Lord, why are you allowing me to go through this? And if you were to come to me and I'd say, I'm clueless. I don't know why Lord's allowing. I could try to make something you know, make you feel good, but I don't know. But I do know this. I know that Jesus loves you. I know that God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us, and it's a plan for good, not for harm. So I'm going to trust, even though I don't see, I don't understand, I'm going to trust his goodness, and I'm going to just look to him, and I'm going to cling to him. What else did they say in their worship? He removes kings and raises up kings. And I had to bring up our election. I, I know it's over and stuff. But I want to just say this, whether or not the election was a fraud, that didn't change whom God allowed to be on in our administration. Okay? God's still in control. It's not like God's like, oh, man, those guys cheated. I had, this person was going to do it. Man, they, oh, man, God threw up his hands. That's it. You know, that's not God. God allowed the situation that we're in. I, I don't understand it. I don't really care for it. But God allowed it. The rug was not pulled out from under God's plan. Man, if that was the case, could you imagine how scary the things would be right now? If the people that are in control right now were in control and they had more control or more say than God in his sovereign power, that would be very frightening. When I see the things that happen, I go, oh, man, I don't like it. It's going to impact me. I'm scared in some respects. But you know what? God's bigger than all these things that we're going through. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I don't know. I was, <clears throat> Teresa and I went out to Wisconsin yesterday. We got together with some pastors and their wives 
um, uh, the, a lot of the Wisconsin Calvary Chapel pastors, and they've been gracious to Teresa and I. We, we just get together with them for fellowship, even though we're in a different region. But I told the pastor that did, I said, we're your stepchildren, but thanks for letting us be here, you know. But it, it's a t great time of fellowship and encouragement. I tell you, we need it. Um, and uh, anyways, one of the pastors was talking to Teresa and I and, and said, uh, did you catch William Shatner's interview when he, when he, you know, he went up in space with Jeff Bezos? I don't know if you guys caught it. There's a YouTube video. Watch it. Watch it. It's fascinating to me because here's this 90-year-old man who's literally afraid of death because he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. He doesn't know where life, you know, what's going to happen. He doesn't, he's, I don't know if he's an atheist or not, but he's not a believer. He, and he went up into space and he came down on ground and you listen to what he says. The thing that amazed him, I'll just give you a little snippet, the thing that amazed him was this, the separation between light and darkness and how thin that, that separation was and how you went from one moment of being in what he called life, which is oxygen in our atmosphere, to what outer space, what he called death. He says, that's, he says this is life, that's death. This is light, that's black. And the immensity of space, it just, it just it literally overwhelmed. Pray for William Shatner. Pray for him, because I think God's shook him up a little bit here. John 8 Verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. doesn't matter how dark things are getting, there's light in Jesus Christ. There's a light in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He will, he will reveal things. He will illuminate things. Things make sense in the light of him and his glory and his power and his love. So, Daniel first worshiped the Lord before he does anything else. Worship, what is worship? Worship, I think, it's this music that you kind of turn to on the radio, you know? It's like, oh, there, there's worship. <laughs> no. Worship is a response to what the Lord is doing in your life and who he is in your life. That's what worship is. It's not a radio station or a genre of music. It's what God's doing in your life. It's sort of like the mist that rises up from the edge of a waterfall. If you can just kind of picture in your mind this waterfall is the blessings of God, the mercies of God, the grace of God that just flood us. It is overwhelming. And the, you know, the power of God, you, see, you know, the, you know, the, the, the roar of the, of, the, of the waterfall, that's like what God is doing in our lives. And sometimes I'm just like, Lord, I'm just overwhelming that you would love me when I'm such a jerk, that you would extend grace to me, and I don't deserve it. And it just keeps coming. It doesn't like, God's like, yeah, you're right. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. It just keeps coming over and over and over again like a waterfall. And that mist that rises up, that's just our worship. There's nothing to it, but it's a response to this flood of God's blessings and mercies of our life. That's what worship, that's kind of a picture of what worship is. It's our response to him, to what he does and who he is. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and thus said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. It's, it, it, that's fascinating to me because, you know, Daniel, if he was any kind of a competitive or jealous could have been, yeah, yeah, you know, don't kill me and my companions, but, you know, those guys are flakes. He didn't do that. Fascinating. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch uh, quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. For those of you that are here in the sanctuary, ignore the slide. I hit it too soon. So it <laughs> has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Verse 25, then Arioch brought, quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Do you kind of sense the pride or the, what Arioch, Arioch is doing? He's very quick to take credit for something he had no, he had nothing to do with it. But he's taking credit for it. It reminds me of the letter that Claudius Lysias 
in Acts 23 wrote to the letter uh, wrote to Felix the governor in Acts 23. And he's speaking about Paul. He's writing this letter to Felix. And he says, "This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman." Wow, it sounds really noble. When in reality, actually, he was the one who arrested him and bound him and was about to scourge him and then found out he was a Roman citizen and you can't scourge Roman citizens without a trial. So he's like, oh man, I almost blew it. Reminds me of that. Arioch there is taking credit for what he had no, he didn't do anything. Verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare it to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what was to come, to, about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who made known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Now you can pay attention to the slide. Paul says, don't be wise in your own opinion. And we see that in Daniel. Daniel's like, hey, it's not in me. Don't, don't look at me like I'm something special. It's God who's revealed that. I love that humility. So verse 31, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. We get the impression that it was very large. Verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the threshing floor, summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Verse 37, you, O king, are a king of kings. For God, uh, excuse me, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. 
The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. I wanted to read through the whole thing rather than break it up and we'll go back into that and look at it. So his dream was of a very large statue of a man, dazzling in appearance and very awesome. In other words, it struck awe and wonder. And it was made up of different materials. What Nebuchadnezzar was shown, or what he was being shown, was all the world-dominating kingdoms, the empires of the world, starting, uh, the kingdoms of the Gentiles, I should say, starting with Babylon, with his kingdom, Babylon, and going down through history. One thing that's kind of interesting in here, you'll notice that the description starts at the head and goes down to the feet, and the metals start with the greatest value, gold, and they, can, they decrease into lesser values. While they decrease in value, however, they increase in strength, right? Gold is the most malleable of the, of the fine metals. Silver's less, and of course, iron is strong, and you know, go on from there, or bronze, I should say, and then, then iron. So the head of God, excuse me, the head of this image, the most valuable metal, gold, Daniel says, that's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're the head of gold, and your, Babylon, or your empire, Babylon, was the greatest. One of the things that uh, we read in Daniel 5, verse 19, about Babylon and about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, says, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put, put down. He was the greatest in influence. Babylon was greater influence than in uh, geographical size, but Babylon in a real sense was a head or a source, if you could consider the head of a, or a source. He, Babylon was the source or the head of all the world's false religions we read in Revelation 17 verse 5. We also read that it was the source or the head of all the world's materialistic greed in Revelation 18 verse 3. It all came from Babylon. So Babylon was that head of gold. It was of great influence in the history of mankind. But his kingdom, and I'm sure he didn't want to hear this, his kingdom would not exist forever. There'd be another kingdom that would arise after Babylon, and that was represented by the arms and chest of silver. And we know historically the next kingdom after Babylon to be the Medes and the Persians. And they dominated the known world from 538 B.C. to 334 B.C. Their kingdom didn't last either. The Medes and the Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great in 334 B.C. The Greek Empire dominated the world until 334 B.C. until it was defeated by Rome under Augustus in 31 B.C. That's represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. And then we have the Roman Empire, represented by the legs of iron and the feet of partly iron, partly clay. This is talking about the Roman Empire. This fourth kingdom, there's a little bit more elaboration about it. It'd be as strong as iron and would crush all the others. And if you look historically at the strength and the might of the Roman Empire, they definitely crushed all other empires before it. It really does describe the strength of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was split into two. We know that from history under the Emperor Diocletian. And that, we think, is represented by the two legs of this image. The Western Roman Empire was centered at Rome and it continued until 476 AD. There's going to be a test later on. I hope you're taking notes. No, I'm just kidding. The Eastern Roman Empire was centered at Constantinople and it continued until 1454 AD. So we have this, uh, this, this figure, you look at history and go, oh man, because God said it. I mean, God, God told the future. And although the political Roman Empire no longer exists, the ecclesiastical form of the two legs of the Roman Empire and continues to this day in the form of the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Greek Orthodox Church in the East. So this is a progression or a degression, however you want to look at it, of the different empires down through history from Babylon down to our day. And what is yet 
unfulfilled in this image, I believe, are the ten toes. Now, some people take ten kingdoms that have existed in the past, uh, over the past several centuries, and go, well, these are the ten toes. There's a problem with that. And the problem is this. The ten toes in this vision or this dream, they represent ten kings who are all going to reign at the same time in history, and they're going to form a confederation in the form of the Roman Empire. That hasn't, exist that hasn't happened yet. So this is not completely fulfilled history here. It's unfulfilled. This has never occurred yet in history. The ten toes, by the way, we'll see that in chapter 7, I believe, as being represented also by the ten horns of the beast in chapter 7 when we get to that. My point is this. The toes represent a ten-nation confederacy that has not yet existed to date altogether at the same time. Then he says, then in the dream there was a stone, a stone was cut out without hands that strikes the feet of the image and causes the entire, this massive awesome image to collapse and to be crushed into powder. And he says, that stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of these kingdoms, when he's speaking, I believe, prophetically of this ten-nation confederacy, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And I believe this is speaking of the thousand year or the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Now, some believers, they love the Lord. I don't question their faith at all. They don't believe in a in a, in, in a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth. It's all millennialism. They believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ is an allegory of the church age. And so if you were to tie that allegory of the church age with this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, then the stone that grows into a mountain has got to be the church age, if you were all millennialist. Well, the problem with this is that the stone that strikes the image, grinds all the other kingdoms to powder, and they blow away as chaff. That hasn't happened to this point. Plus, it's not a gradual replacing of the kingdoms. They are all destroyed at one time and replaced with God's kingdom. And so here's my point. The world has not seen a ten-nation confederacy that reigns simultaneously. That's what I, I personally believe. So if, if I'm right, and this is a, a future kingdom, then that stone has not yet crushed the image. So I don't see how you can say that stone is the church age, or the, or the kingdom, of, you know, kingdom of God, the church here on earth. I don't, I don't see how it can fit with this prophecy. I believe this stone is, of course, speaking of Christ's return at the end of the Great Tribulation to set up his 1,000-year reign on earth. And again, I mentioned this earlier, those ten, tones, ten toes, uh, they're also mentioned as ten horns in chapter 7, are ten kings who are going to surrender their power and authority to one king, and that's the Antichrist. So that portion has not happened yet. Well, Jesus Christ is the stone that was cut, cut out without hands. We see that in Romans 9, verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2, 6. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. In Luke 20, Jesus quotes Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he says this, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it'll grind him to powder. What does that mean? What is Jesus talking about? Whoever falls on him will be broken. Whoever comes to him in humility and admits that you're a sinner, I, I need a savior, Lord God, Please forgive me. I repent of my sins. That's falling on him. You're, you're broken. You're humbled. But if you don't do that, eventually you'll be broken and humbled in another way when Jesus Christ returns and all the world will bow their knee at him and say, Jesus is Lord. But by that time, it'll be too late. It'll be too late and they'll be ground to powder, so to speak. So what are the lessons that we get here in chapter 
2. First of all, God changes times and seasons. He raises one up and puts down another. He's in control of what's going on. And understanding that, don't let yourself be shaken. God's still working in the lives of the Nebuchadnezzars of our times. Pray for our leaders, man. Pray that God speaks to them, gives them dreams, whatever. Again, Jesus is not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. But this I also believe. While we're in these different seasons and God's in control and and God is speaking to the Nebuchadnezzars of this world, he's also still looking for Daniels in this generation. Daniels, or guys like the sons of Issachar, who are wise, they're discerning, and they understand the times and know what to do. Just because our world's in upheaval and, and maybe your own life is in upheaval, God still wants to work in it. He still has a plan and a purpose, and it might be different than what it was before, but God is still at work. And so let's be, let's be seeking the Lord. Lord, how can you use me in this situation, in this time? Because he's still working. Not only that, but the Lord is still looking for worshipers. Jesus said this, John 4, 23, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. He's seeking people that are worshipers, who will worship in the season change that they find themselves in, and even in spite of it, and even thank worshiping him for the change. That's what he's looking for. Well, let's get back to our story here, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before David and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Wow, you look at that prophecy and go, man, Nebuchadnezzar was really moved. Maybe he's a believer now. Not yet. As we see in the stories, we'll see in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar was moved, but not to the point of surrender. But praise God, it's going to happen in chapter 4. I'll give you a little sneak peek. I think Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see him in heaven. I really believe that firmly. Not his grandson, but we'll see him. <laughs> Anyways, we'll get to those stories later. Why don't, uh, why don't I have the worship team coming up? Let's go Lord in prayer.